Cue up the music, Tony. And hit it. <laughs> it's been so long, we Play don't again. remember how to do it. <laughs> Welcome to Tom Waits, part four on <laughs> five. I'm Austin Thomas, joined by the fellas, Ethan Bonin, Anton Ryder. We're here to put, oh we're here to put this thing to bed. That it's been a long time coming, much longer than any of us were expecting. We're just happy ever planned that it's. Well, we're sad that it's ending, as we say with every yes, series. Yes, we're sad that yes, it's ending every but time. It has been it just got away from us. It has been a pain to get this out, simply because <laughs> where the last year has been do nothing all the time. This past month has been do everything always catch up as fast up as you time. can. Yes. And so we've had to do a bachelor party and a wedding. Austin's married. That's something that just happened. Austin's a freaking married man you. holding up his ring Look like people you. can see. I, you guys could see it. I, li- yeah. I liked it, so I went and put a ring on yeah, it. Yeah, we we're familiar. Yeah, we were there. Yeah, I saw it. We took the trip. We made the trek. Uh, Want to move there now? So... They didn't get the hint. Eight hours away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful place! Yeah, so the yes. the wedding was lovely, and the 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 location was lovely, and we could oh, I could not be happier for you. I don't know about great. Ethan; I'm Thanks, not going to speak for him. Beautiful. Ethan seemed it's beautiful. I loved That's it. Fine. Mm-hmm. All yep. of it. Everything. <laughs> I want to live well, there. The, I heard I had an old. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's awesome, and like that old adage is so true that Lutzen and early july no (laughs) you've heard it once you've heard it a thousand times so it would seem in early july is beautiful god (laughs) yes but enough about us yes we've got someone much more important to talk (laughs) about and that of course is tom waits the most important Mm, yes so when we last left tom he was living in his small town far away from the cities he had known all his life and was the inception for much of the material for all his albums up to this point. Just a quick disclaimer, if if you're worried, he's still got plenty of big city subject matter to work off. He's just going to add a whole new mm. flavor here. Oh, yeah. He's going to have a new new swing to the, to the old material that he's, he's written for this long. There's some swing. There's mm. some swing. He had lived comfortably in the suburbs of L.A., L.A. proper, in New York City. But now he was comfortably parked in Valley Ford, Five miles from the Pacific Ocean, 75 miles from San Francisco, and home to mm-hmm. between 20 and 150 people as of the 2010 census, because apparently uh, nobody can land on a solid number for how many people live in that town. It, you'd think it'd be an easily, easily countable Big number, gap. but they are Big all gap. over the place. It, I mean, it seems like a rural area. I was looking on Zillow just to see like if there's anything for sale in the yeah. area anything there's only one property for sale in Valley Ford and it's 2.5 million dollars it's 333.5 okay. acres not bad 
gentle rolling hills, two water reservoirs, various springs, mm, and a okay. seasonal creek, which I think means a dried up creek until further notice since California is currently going through a drought. <laughs> that's that's a seasonal creek, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> beautiful. A, that's though. a nice way to sprinkle in that that beautiful. creek is dead. Yep. <laughs> Everything else looks beautiful. Just don't mind any kind of water feature. Oh, I think yeah. It needs to be wet. Well, I think that's not fun. I think Sonoma. <laughs> yeah, no, California's in trouble. Um, I think fair. Sonoma <laughs> County is a, a very nice place to live, um, even if Valley Ford and, and the other cities we're going to speak of through the episode are, are small in nature. But it is Sonoma's nice. nice place to live, huh? Mm, wonderful wine, from what I've heard. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Never heard that one. That's crazy. <laughs> so, all the same, he moved to handle his newfound sobriety and find a quiet, tucked away place for his wife, Kathleen, and his two kids, Kelly, Simone, and Casey, to get the privacy they deserved. You're going to see by the end of this, as much as younger Tom loved the big city nightlife, he really loves privacy because he does not go back to the city and in his words oh, yeah. he needed something a little more not volatile which is just poetic <laughs> true tom waits fashion i can so relate the man. most poetic way lived in oklahoma city suburb <laughs> yeah a little more not i never want to go back to a city yeah. ever it's hard he no. And it's funny because he was like mm. the city guy. He was like the seedy underbelly of the city, like yeah. like l intentionally live in it. But I think it was just another way to to further himself from the character that he had had been portraying in the 70s. And so he said, I'm not that guy anymore. You may think I am, but I am. Look at me. I'm living in a town of, of 50 people and I, and I will not tell anyone my address because. I am I'm so hidden away like that's mm -hmm. I'm th that that past Tom is dead and now this is the one I am so he was, two sides of a coin buddy he was doing it so once he was settled in he also felt refreshed to start work on his next official studio album he had found a small unassuming studio in the town of Katati 15 miles away with a population of about 5,700 people at this time. Uh, the studio was Prairie Sun Recording Studio, which up until this point had not seen a lot of big names from what I can deduce. But that's just a surface level deduction without looking into it. So don't <laughs> just take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> oh, Austin is baiting me here. Uh, <laughs> I looked on Discogs uh, with the names associated with the studio. And before Tom, I only saw Faith No More did their first album there. And the Damn Yankees, uh, which is uh, Tommy Shaw and a couple more guys. It's kind of a super group, but in a very small way. And then Jason Becker, uh, uh, who was the the guitarist, the incredible guitarist that uh, got got um, ALS and now is in a wheelchair. Oh, that's ah, Jason yeah, Becker. Yep. Yeah, we've talked about him. Yeah, we've talked about him a couple I times. Don't yeah, when, but yep. Uh, so. It's funny. I was it was challenging to find a timeline on all this, and so I decided to call up Prairie Sun, and then I ended up talking with Muka Renick, the founder of the studio, and um, I wanted to just ask him one question, and then he said, "Well, I can't answer that right now, but why don't we set up a time to uh, really talk?" And so we did, and I ended up interviewing both him. And the studio manager for quite a while, who was basically the main engineer or one of the engineers and the studio manager during the time Tom Waits was there, uh, Jeff Sloan. And so I just really want to just say a huge thank you to both Muka and Jeff for taking the time to talk yeah. to me. And that episode <laughs> obviously so much. <laughs> uh, is obviously out now. And it's it's a fascinating little episode and, and, and dive into 
the world of Tom Waits and in the world of Prairie Sun in general. And if you're ever in Kotati, Katati, go check out the studio because they love have touring touring awesome. it. So go check it out. Didn't get to talk to them, but they sound like lovely so, gentlemen. They are on a whim, they, they did this. Lovely. Yeah, I probably should have invited you guys. It's fine. Yeah. But that's that. That's how it went. I rec- I recorded this. Uh, this is uh, July twentieth, and I recorded that up that that interview about three hours ago. So four hours ago. This so. is very getting so meta right now. Very. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> Go back and listen to the episode we released. It talks about what we're now talking about. <laughs> um, but all the same, he said that Tom Waits kind of just a- showed that there was an expansion in what Prairie Sun could do, and so. Basically, after Tom came through, um, big names like Dick Dale, Primus, uh, Journey, Nine Inch Nails, Huey Lewis, many, many more have come through that studio. And again, this is all in a town of like 7,500 people in 2021. So it's a very small town with all these huge names. I don't know if you could tie a neater bow around the summation of his influence on other artists. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Austin, that's a really nice sentence you put together there. Just really nice, concise words crafted into a fashion that really convey what I would call a fact. What is that? Huh. Good. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Ethan, this isn't like a this isn't like for school. Like you don't need a word there's no word minimum. I'm gonna let him know he did really good. <laughs> Thank right. you. All right. Well that's that's great. <laughs> so I'm choosing to believe you're not being sarcastic. I'm not. I'm not. It's good. So he got into the studio in spring of 1992 to get to work. He went into the studio with songs that he and Kathleen had written, narrowed down from the 60 plus ideas for songs. I liked that in the book he said they went into a room for about a month and banged it out and then followed it up directly with, it's different writing songs with someone else, but hey, we got kids together so we can write songs together. (laughs) Dirty old dog. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) Um, They just banged it out. Gotta. It went and banged it out for a month. Banged it out for a whole month, yeah. Yeah, he went back. The songs. (laughs) Just the songs. (laughs) Oh, he brought back some of his staple musicians and then introduced new ones as well, something he was accustomed to doing at this point. When he got into the space, he decided that it was too clean and quote, unquote, studio sounding. You need that lingering microwave ramen smell. You need it to feel a little dingy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, too much light. Gotta, gotta get those bar lights in there. Keep it real low. Yeah. Keep the lighting low. Give me some moldy mm-hmm. carpet. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Some black mold on the wood. <laughs> Familiar smell. <laughs> Ugh, love that musty <laughs> smell. Well, where he went, he got all of it. So he had done a couple albums here God. already, but not his own studio album. He had done a piece for another band and then he had also done Night on Earth for Jim Jarmusch but this was his own studio album and so he wanted it to have his sound. So he decided that he was going to find a place to get a raw, dirty sound pairing well with the subject matter of the album, which was a lot of death and sadness. The whole thing kind of revolves around death and the idea of the human body after death. So it is very morbid and yeah. done in such Hot. a fun way. Hmm. You got to love it. Got to love it. That's just Tom to a T doing a really morbid subject matter in a, just a fun way. Bones are their money. <laughs> So are the worst. <laughs> Will anyone get it? Will anyone get it? It's also like this guilty escape to life. Escape to life. 
Oh, God. Uh, season two. Sorry. Season two of I Think You Should Leave. Out now. Out now. <laughs> mm. So this was going to be a gritty album. So he asked the studio if they could instead record the album in a more unconventional space. And then this is something direct from Jeff and Muka during the interview. So this will be repetitive if you listen to that. Um, apparently, Tom himself said, well, what's behind that door? And they ended up opening the door and it was a storage room which had a bunch of old furniture in it. And he said, this would be a nice space. Let's get all this furniture out of here. Emptied out the room. And when he went in there, he said, this is the room I'm going to record this album in. And it was it was just a storage room. It was a concrete floor. I think it's concrete walls and then a, and a wood ceiling. And there was no soundproofing, no acoustic treatment in there or anything. It was very echoey, very reverby, and he thought this was the perfect place. This so, is it the reason and and a problem with it since it was so echoey is that they had to be conscious not only of the music that they were recording, but also the world around them, having to stop for planes and trains to pass because the mics that they were using were sensitive enough that they were clearly picking up any world sounds. I mean, when you're right there by the 116 and the 101, there's like there's going to be a lot of noise. It's a busy area. <laughs> you said it, bit. buddy. Yeah. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, if they could have been by the, the by the 104 or the the 210, man, that would have been easy breezy, but the 116 and the 101, buddy. Woof. Those are the heavy ones, heavy traffic ones. You get that peak traffic, yeah, man. Should have chose Interstate 80 instead of the 101. <laughs> Good luck. Good Christ, <laughs> keep moving. I'm sorry. Tom Love Highway Talk. Tom loved all of this. He loved all of it. He loved the fact that these this room was not a studio, and he that that's what he was going for. And you'll see in the future albums, he he expands on it even further. He said that having this unconventional space kind of forced everyone to stay in the present and then not get lost in anything. There was like no way to get complacent, which is a big problem when working on an album. It can mm-hmm. get pretty easy to just phone it in but when you have all this going on in the background you have to like start to really pay attention to what ambient sound works yeah like tom wanted and then what's just too much like when you get a convoy of fucking <laughs> semis outside letting the jake break <laughs> off all you can't cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, Austin is referring back to our very first episode oh where you can 100% hear something pass. And yep. uh, that's what they were dealing with. But they had much more sensitive mics and an even less treated room than our makeshift studio was, was for episode one, which if you remember was blankets and PVC pipe. <laughs> <laughs> and we were using Blue Yeti mics, which are not the best mics in the world. Very loud. Better days. <laughs> <laughs> but to even further confirm that Tom was falling in love with the imperfect lo-fi sound that he was discovering, one of the songs that he did was entirely recorded on a tape recorder at his home and then put onto the album with basically no mixing or mastering. I think that's the sign of a truly talented musician. Or an unhinged psychopath. That's a fine line. Could be. <laughs> and Tom walks it perfectly. <laughs> is he one is he the other yep. we don't know we don't know that's the beauty of it keep him keep him mm-hmm. guessing yeah while tom brought in musicians for the album one instrumentalist that was missing was a percussion player with a slight exception that we will get to in a minute because tom decided that he himself and to an extent the rest of the people in the studio were going to do all the percussion parts he had played plenty of piano and guitar on his records but now he wanted to do the drums he played drums 
But the result that they got was a chaotic, imperfect percussion section, which was perfect for Tom. This also ties back into what I was saying about the focus on the human body. And Tony said it in the first episode, but the percussion on this one is done in a way pretty intentionally because he said this album is supposed to be stripped down to the bones. Mm -hmm. And even in terms of subject matter is all about bones, cemeteries and dirty blood, his words. So a lot of the percussion has that feel of like the skeleton playing a rib cage marimba. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a fun, (laughs) fun album for percussion it's a fun album for everything but it's the whole thing crazy what they what they do uh he also felt that drums were the most therapeutic of all instruments which i would probably agree with because uh you could just bash them as hard as you wanted and it made an okay sound and that helped him to get rid of his frustrations which was perfect because he was no longer drinking and had access to booze like he had had in the past to help him cope the few times i've readily had access to drums have been some of the best times that I have had. I mean, if you can imagine, I hit the drums pretty hard. It's pretty cathartic when I do do it. I think I think I did at your house once, Tony, and it was oh yeah, it's always fun. Oh yeah, I my my drum set set up and yeah, yeah you, but you anyone who gets on the drums, you don't. I I encourage it. You don't hit them lightly. Hit them. They're not meant to be oh, tapped. Yeah. You're, they're meant to be smashed. So do it too, baby. But you've never had a problem with alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, no, you you've never. also had other outlets. Never. To release your frustrations. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's different for me. So the entire album was recorded in this unconventional space, minus the 53-second song, Let Me Get Up On It, which, as I said, was recorded on Tom's personal tape player. And then Tom's friend, Keith Richard, decided to join in on the album, not being seen since Rain Dogs. He did some overtracking and background vocals for the album's closing track called That Feel. But he didn't come to Prairie Sun to do this, choosing instead to stay in New York and record at Studio 900. I was I was bored while I was reading through this, and I wanted to see if Keith Richards had dual citizenship. I could not find a definitive answer okay. on whether or not he did. But I did find a funny response hmm. on IORR.org for a post about whether or not the members of the band had dual citizenship or not. That's a hard word to okay. say. Uh, and I got a response from Peckman, and he said, none. Citizens of the world. That's what keeps them rolling stones. And I think, I think he's right. They're just rolling um, stones, you know? Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What a goddamn tryhard this Peckman yeah, Peck- is. Give me a break. <laughs> oh, I thought it was God. funny, okay. <laughs> oh my God, give me a break. I do I do feel like rock stars just don't have citizenship, though. They could just be like, oh yeah, I lived in London yeah. for a year, and then I went and lived in New York for a year, and then I went and yeah. lived in India for a year. Just do, do whatever. Do. It's fine. How the other half lived. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Bezos just went to space, so that's great. God. The first- uh, so the album- Congratulations. <laughs> so the album- also saw guest appearances by Les Claypool and Brain from the band Primus, with Brain being the exception that we talked about, playing drums on a couple tracks. Brian Mancha actually went on to play with Guns N' Roses in uh, the Chinese democracy area, mm. era, area, era. era. That doesn't actually matter, but it's a thing. Now, here's something that still doesn't matter, but is a, is a little fun. At mm-hmm. this point in time, Francis Thumb has become a big, or Thum, has become a pretty big part of Tom's life again. And if you remember, Francis was his piano teacher that w- they would sing Doors songs in the style of Sinatra. Yes. And they collaborated on the, the album that came out before this, uh, Night 
Night on Earth. And uh, he was present for this album also, but was deemed security. That's fun. And here's the apology. We made a lot of jokes about a classically trained pianist named Francis Thumb not being a very attractive lady. Francis is a man. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. It's way off. (laughs) Uh, Everyone's sorry. How about that? (laughs) Sorry. Didn't know. We were just ignorant. My grandma's right? name was Fran. That was, that was us months ago. <laughs> I'm different now. God, freaking boy named Sue. Give me a break. We're sorry. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. So they wrapped up the production and got ready to promote the still unreleased record. First by sending Tom to Paris in July to talk to the press with the same resentment that he was known for. He then headed back to the States to promote it more and prepare for its release. This is around the time that his friend Jim Jarmish came to record another music video for him and the coffee and cigarette short that we spoke of in the last episode, where he chatted with Iggy Pop at a diner, uh, which is actually filmed at a diner near Tom's house in Ford Valley, Valley Fort. When Jim got to Tom's house, he found an exhausted man riding his son's bike with goggles and a horned hat on. Is that like a Viking hat? Yeah, a Viking yeah. hat, like the picture of on the album. Oh, <laughs> it son, is very difficult that, huh? to, make, to make it out. <laughs> it is blurry. It's blurry, I guess. But look. if you want a better look at it, the this became the inspiration for Jesse Dillon, who was the son of Bob Dylan, when he filmed and directed the music video for Going Out West. And during that time, he snapped the photo that would become the album art for Tom Waits' 11th album, Bone Machine, which released Mm, on September 8th, 1992. It only reached up to number 176 on the charts, and it didn't even certify, but the album was incredibly well-received critically. It was the first of his next unofficial trilogy, this one being dubbed the Apocalypse Trilogy. The album was a far cry from anything he had put out before, with it being much more raw and unpolished, which helped to sell it as an apocalyptic, already aged album. I really want to try and describe it in more detail, but it's one of those albums that you have to hear, and (laughs) once you do, that description will make sense. It's... Like really dismal, and it feels like everything's a little bleak and rusted over. Yep. And there's a story I really like while they were recording. Uh, Tom was listening to playback, and at one point he said it sounded too friendly. And he was like, is there any way we can make this sound more antisocial? <laughs> and he came out and like of the booth and started like dragging his leg around. And he's like, come on, boys, this thing's got to limp a little. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was like dragging his leg, and all the musicians were like, all right, we got it. Yep. We understand what he means. and It worked. That's what they went for. God, it's insane. <laughs> and this album was the first album he had put out that was nominated and won a Grammy for Best Alternative Music Album, beating out the B-52s, The Cure, Morrissey, and Ecstasy. Tom wasn't super stoked about the fact that his Grammy win was in the alternative music category, saying that it was a fake category and stating, quote, Alternative to what? Unquote. <laughs> he does have a pretty good point. It seems like a yeah. cop out. It's a weird category mm-hmm. to have. It's a huge crock. Seven years later, he wins a Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Album on an album we'll get to that really is not that drastically different from Bone Machine. So it's kind of throwing a genre on there that they think makes him sound the most with it, the most down, you know? Yeah. It's like saying, yeah, indie. I just looked it up in alternative, alternative music. 
uh, according to Merriam-Webster, is music that is produced by performers who are outside the musical mainstream. It's that typically regarded as more eclectic, original, or challenging than most popular music. It's just for good music, huh? So there you go. It doesn't really make, a, make <laughs> so an answer. It's not really a genre. Not, just, yeah, just kind just of a catch-all. Not, not, not a great pop. one. <laughs> Again, his, 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 uh, his challengers for the title were The Cure, B-52s, <laughs> Ecstasy, and Morrissey. So, like, it was a it was a pretty widespread uh, f- uh, spread of genres there. Yeah. But all the same, yep. he won it. He was a Grammy winner now. So Tom decided not to tour this album because as soon as he had some free time, he decided to start doing what he had done with Frank's Wild Years to the play The Black Rider, which he had done music for a couple years earlier in Hamburg, Germany, if you remember. He decided that the music needed to be put out there for the people, so he got musicians back into Prairie Sun Recording, again, from all different times in his career, and began work right away. Right away. There was no delay between Bone Machine getting released and going to work on this. The author of Low Side of the Road said that it's... um, that's a thing that happens with alcoholics when mm-hmm. they get sober. They spread themselves too thin, trying to make up for lost time. The author said it. <laughs> you did say it, yeah. That's a wow. that's a quote from the author. I think it's also they're afraid if I don't, if I stop doing something, the only thing I'm going to have to do is drink. fall back on alcohol. So I have to yeah. keep myself incredibly busy. Mm-hmm. And if they're in a space where it's like, oh, I made an album that was doing well or something that I'm happy with, I have to keep going because I don't know if I'm ever going to get this headspace back where I can write a good album or I can work on a good album with my sober thoughts. Like if I stop, yeah. take a break, I might not ever get this the, 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 the flow that I've got going right now. And so he started the Black Rider work immediately. Get it while the getting's good. Yeah, he again wanted the tracks from the stage show to be true to their essence, but then still have the updated feel that he was going for. So what transpired was Tom pushing people to try things that weren't on the pages the score provided. He used the phrase going out to the meadow, basically saying there's no score, no script Mm -hmm. to follow. You're just going out and finding what you can find. And not all musicians working with him really like this method and get a little peeved off. Yeah, I think it's a little bit more difficult when you have a physical piece of music in front of you because it sounded like up until this point, nobody really ever had that before. So they were all kind of going off what was ever in Tom's brain. But now they actually had this physical piece of music and they weren't allowed to follow it. Like they were told, mm-hmm. don't pay attention to this, even though there actually was something here. So that's like, I imagine that's that that was more frustrating. Yeah, Here's a little a bit more challenging than it. just having to make it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they, you know, they would just have to improvise and adapt to the world that Tom was pulling them into. And uh, sometimes he would pull them in just with straight up rage and anger. Discomfort has historically made some of the best content of all time. That's right. Like the MyPillow. Blood's all over the fucking walls. Thing will never fucking breathe again. You're a murderer. It's <laughs> something he would yell at people. O- only kind of not really kidding mostly at all. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> He'd figure it out. He'd figure out how to get him in there. Yeah, it's like the Black Rider is a story about a, a very happy event. It's not like it's about, yeah. you know, the Olympics. Yeah, he, he pulled them into some dark places to make them do what they got to do. It no, that was in response to them not liking what he was asking them to do. Right, yeah, just pull them in. Yeah, okay. Get, get the fuck in here. We're going for a ride in my dingy old Coupe de Ville. 
Welcome to my and, headspace. And uh, you're not going to like it. Shut up and ride. <laughs> but in the end, it'll work out. That's what he did. You're right. <laughs> so some it of the did. tracks were straight from the 1989 Hamburg sessions, and others were redone at Prairie Sun. It had all the things Tom Waits fans were used to, with a lot of horns, keys, marimba, strings, piano, etc. They recorded the album in 1992, and they finished up, and then Tom went to Sunset Sounds in L.A. to mix the album. And he would listen to the tracks on his cassette player in his 1975 Sedan Deville to make sure they sounded good. As he said that this was the best sound system to listen to it, beating out even Sunset Sounds' top-of-the-line sound system in his own mind. Hey, man, there's a there's a 76 in Milwaukee. <laughs> In Milwaukee for forty two thousand right now, so I bet it has a pretty decent sound system. Still selling for a new car. Forty two thousand dollars. Oh my what? god! I looked it up. Wow, that is someone is really shooting for the moon here. I don't think they'll ever get there. But what do I? Know? Yeah, it seems like a steep request. It's like the quintessential grandpa car. Yeah, the next one down was a seventy four, and it was for twenty five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Apparently the 76 is rocking and rolling. Whatever. Cars don't matter. All they have to do is get you to your place. No, they don't. doesn't matter, though. (laughs) The album was finished up, and the original plan was for it to come out in the spring of 1993, but then it was pushed back to the fall of 1993, likely to add more time between the releases of Bone Machine and this album. And in September of 1993, The Black Rider came out, charting at 130 and not certifying anywhere due to its decidedly difficult listening experience. This is something he kind of runs into whenever he converts songs from a theatrical show into mm-hmm. an album. I shouldn't say whenever, but it did last time and this time. And yeah. I kind of wonder if it's something to do with the mentality of like, I like this artist, but this new album is just songs from a play he did. Is it right. even worth listening to? And if I haven't seen it, am I? Is it going to make sense? And it yeah. just kind of gets written off, like even even though it's right down the alley of the other music he's putting out. It's maybe I don't know easier right. to. No, it, I'm sure out. there's like I de- a level of like, should I watch the play beforehand too? Yeah, exactly. But I'm not going to. to go into. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's yeah. the same as you know if if an if an artist puts out a soundtrack album, it's like well. It's a soundtrack album. Yeah. Is it really yeah. that good? You know, kind of you forcefully that summed constrained. It up way better than the whole thing I said. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I get you right away. <laughs> uh, it, we got it. But yeah, it's a good album. I mean, it's fun and it's still absolutely Tom Waits. It's just kind of difficult to listen to because it is even more raw than anything he had done before. So that's how it goes. But another factor that may have contributed to the delayed release was that as soon as it was done being recorded and mixed, Tom was asked once again to work with Robert Wilson, the director of the Black Rider play, on his new project, Alice. It would once again be done in Hamburg, but Tom stayed stateside and received the work they were doing and then tried to write to it. And then he finally made his way to Germany in November 1992 at the insistence of Kathleen, who said that he could not pass up this opportunity. There are very few times in history where I'd pass up an opportunity to go to Germany, so I get it. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's the opportunity she was referring to, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with Wilson. (laughs) So... He brought no. so he brought no. along with him a plethora of unique, often homemade instruments that he had read about in the very niche magazine Experimental Musical Instruments Quarterly. It's a real magazine. Unfortunately, 
It's no longer in print. Oh, it uh, ended in 1999. That's too bad. And not, not many people read an experimental musical instrument's quarterly, the Ocho, unfortunately. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Darn. Oh, listenership. Who would have saw that coming? Yeah, went down. It's the internet. The internet killed it, I'm guessing. Damn internet. Yep. Killed it. Uh, what, so, what year was this? <laughs> uh, this oh, was 1993. Yeah, yeah, 1992. Late 1992. Um, so he had gotten his hands on a few of the instruments from this magazine, like the wind wands, the PVC membrane saxophone, and the photon clarinet, which Tom himself sounded like a keyboard lobster dying on a campfire. Uh, so the photon clarinet still has a website to this day. <laughs> Yeah, it's for twelve hundred dollars a piece. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the website is like valid. I don't know oh, if they just. I mean, they have to keep renewing the. the it looks site, so. It looks like it hasn't been updated it... since nineteen ninety three. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like it's like red the, writing the description on a gray background it's with hard. like yeah, the old animated emojis. Yeah, it's horrible. Wonderful. <laughs> like. Gifts everywhere. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> weird color schemes. Uh, it's I. From the description, it seems like it's like a theremin. Yeah. And uh, also good luck finding an audio representation of the instrument because I couldn't find a single one. Yep. HTTPS colon slash slash soundcloud.com backslash Gateson S-G-A-T-E-S-O-N backslash photon dash clarinet dash (laughs) solar. And I think it's so hard to find that many recordings of it because A24 bought all the rights to the sound. <laughs> I just own the sound now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Austin, is that, a real, uh, is that a real link? It sure is, buddy. That's amazing. Nice job, dude. Wow. I don't, I don't sleep until I, I get the lead. That is incredible. I'm going uh, to- I'm hungry. The, I'll put that in the episode's description and let people go straight to it. That's, that's wonderful. Put, put show notes. It job, is actually buddy. fun to listen to. Is it pretty good sounding? Here, I'm, I'm very gonna... similar to a theremin, honestly. Uh, it, yeah. it, it is. Say, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> That's everything I, I guessed. I'm oh, it's weird. It. It's so weird. It's very. Oh yeah, it's a theremin. It's a theremin. I'm gonna you share see my uncut sound. Uncut gems playing. You see, you see good time playing. You see, <laughs> it's just, it's just subtle. It's not very in your face. It's just that is horrifying. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh my god, it's, it's subtle. Not it's not in your face. <laughs> Okay, well that is nightmare inducing. I'm done with that. But that will go in the episode. I'm I'm after after our news episode where we just blatantly played fucking Hinkley Jr.'s music, I feel comfortable doing just about anything. Now. Just do anything. Fuck them. Who cares? <laughs> oh yeah, that's nice. Put- that oh, is nightmare. Man. Okay. Bezos went to space today. I was just gonna say he's posted on SoundCloud. We don't have to worry. Oh yeah. But I don't want to keep that. I don't need to bash this guy. He's keeping this, the photon clean yeah. out alive. He's the only sound we could find of it, so good for him. Thank you. <laughs> so when Tom got to Hamburg, too. he only had about six weeks to get everything together on his side, which meant a lot of long nights and stressful days. It was a story loosely based on Alice in Wonderland, which Robert said gave Tom the freedom to write about anything he wanted, as there were no rules in the world of Wonderland. Tom took this and built out a soundtrack that could be described as a dark carnival with all the classic instruments that one hears at a typical carnival while still dealing with some darker subject matter and no lack of imagery inspired by the 1932 film Freaks. I'm fucking 
chomping at the bit here because this song's <laughs> turned into one of my favorite albums, but we got about 10 years to go. Oh, yeah. This does not come out for quite a while, but I would love to see this play. This sounds incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sounds awesome. Absolutely. So when it was all finished up, some demos were cut, which were actually stolen out of Tom's car while he was buying a stuffed anaconda as a souvenir, and then were bootlegged onto an album called Alice the Original Demos, which released sometime later against the wishes of Tom. And after they copied the demos, they then ransomed the the demos back to Tom for $3,000, which Tom had said later was insultingly low. How how big was the stuffed anaconda souvenir? <sighs> the green anaconda, or Unictes marinus, can reach lengths of 17 <laughs> feet, 5 meters. Wow. Some specimens may be as long as 36 feet, Holy or 11 God. meters. But this is unusual. The anaconda is the heaviest snake in the world. A large individual anaconda may weigh 1,100 pounds, wow. or hmm. 500 kilograms, but will usually top out at a few hundred pounds. Wow. That is fascinating. So, I, so I don't fucking know how big it was. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue. I hope he got it. Well, it was long enough for your mom last night. Am I right, everyone? Come on. Hey. <laughs> edutainment. Edutainment. Heavy on the education, but also heavy on the entertainment. And we are nailing comedy this episode. <laughs> so Feeling loose. Ooh, so once the play premiered on December 19th, 1992 in Hamburg, Tom stuck around to see the premiere, and then he headed back to be with his family and take some time off. Having recorded and released one album, recorded a second album, and written and premiered a soundtrack to play on the other side of the world, and then made one more movie appearance in the film Shortcuts, acting alongside Robert Downey Jr., Tim Robbins, Lily Taylor, Francis McDermott, Julian Moore, and Huey Lewis, which debuted in October 1993 to critical acclaim. I was not aware that Huey acted. Hey, buddy, I got one line for you that's going to change that. (laughs) I'm afraid you're just too damn loud. (laughs) (laughs) What is is that? I'm sorry. That I is... wish I could count the number of times Tony and I have said that on this show. <laughs> that is, that's Back to the Future, baby. I'm, 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 it's when Marty McFly's band oh, plays please. Power, of, Power Love, of Love, and Huey Lewis is the judge. Oh, the judge, yeah, okay. they're trying to find music for the play. And he says, you're he too says da- it's I'm too afraid loud. you're just too that damn is... loud. That's Huey, baby. Perfectly. Wow, that makes it way more, get that, that. that's hilarious now that I know. <laughs> yeah, isn't huh. that clever? That's yep. clever. That's Huey Lewis. I don't know how many times we've talked about Too it. Many. <laughs> Too many. A lot of times. Too many. Just for me to not know, yeah. We have to go over this again. Uh, so the biggest reason that Tom wanted to take some time off was because Kathleen found out that she was with child at the beginning of 1993, and so he wanted to stay home to be with her. I know I said it after the first child, but what a good dad. Yeah. What a good dad. He also said that he thought about touring and then also thought he'd rather be attacked by a school of hagfish, but having another kid is a reason too, I guess. That's one good reason, and it's a good scapegoat reason to to, to not have to do something that you Sorry, absolutely hate doing. A- another kid, thank fucking God. I would much rather wake up at 3 a.m. every day to change a shitty diaper than have to go out on the road and tour. Mm. And I get it. Mm. I get it. Please let us tour someday. I want uh, it. So t- <laughs> I do. I do want it. Please. <laughs> so Tom decided <laughs> that he would take some time off and stay home to help. And Sullivan Waits was born in 1993, likely 
just around the time that the Black Rider was released. Tom decided not to tour it and continued his time in Valley Ford, away from any kind of spotlight, and he did this for the next three years. His absence from the world of music and film sparked plenty of rumors about his ill health or his divorce from Kathleen or yada yada. Yada yada yada. The classic, he got throat cancer with no evidence. Throat cancer. What, so, yep, that one that's going <laughs> around. That that was that rumor was going around too, and yeah. in uh, true Tom Waits fashion, <laughs> when he got asked about it, he would uh, say that he got stuck in traffic. That's, why it took so long <laughs> That's another album. That is perfect. Got <laughs> stuck in traffic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, conspiracy loves a void, and Tom left a big one. When they can't find a rabbit hole, they make their own. They just make their own. Yeah, it turns out you can dig anywhere. <laughs> Though he did do some guest appearances. Singing vocals on the album Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet for his friend Gavin Bryars, actually recorded at Prairie Sun, and then doing a guest spot on the album for the cult classic television series Fishing with John, released seven years earlier, with musician John Lurie taking his friends out on fishing trips where crazy things happen. And uh, it's a very fun premise for a show and i think that i'm going to watch it someday i need to watch it he also did one um with john hammond and jim jarmish and there's another big one that i can't think of the name of now it doesn't matter but fun little side fact the episode that he did with jim jarmish was actually used on an episode of spongebob squarepants uh the the hooked episode or hooky episode where the uh where the carnival comes to town and and they they are Mm -hmm. um and patrick and and spongebob ride the hooks like carnival rides i sense no danger here (laughs) they're covered with free cheese (laughs) (laughs) yes season one episode 20 bingo you got it yep yep when patrick's getting reeled up that's that's uh that's john lurie and and um Jim Jarmusch. So Tom Take also did a couple tracks for the soundtrack for the movie Dead Man Walking, starring Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon. And the album had songs from people like Bruce Springsteen, Johnny Cash, Eddie Vedder, Patti Smith, and others. But for the most part, Tom spent the years 1993 to 1998 hanging out with his family and being a stay-at-home dad. They had plenty of money from the Frito-Lay lawsuit, as well as plenty more covers coming out of his music. And he did put on a big fundraiser in 96. So he played a show, one show mm-hmm. and he put it on for his friend uh, that was charged with distributing LSD. And so they yeah. put on a show. At That's not a o- crime. No, 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 no. They put it on at uh, <laughs> Oakland's Paramount Theater and uh, they pretty much performed all of Bone Machine and then some selections from his older albums and that sold right out oh yeah and that's something we'll see for the rest of his time until present is whenever he does a show it sells out immediately and like you gotta people are desperate for tickets for it (laughs) yeah so like for him to put on a show is incredible and so while he was on his hiatus music came out on his behalf but not with his blessing Herb Cohen's son, Evan Cohen, put out a tribute album of Tom's music in 1995 with artists like The Violent Femmes, 10,000 Maniacs, Tim Buckley, and others doing pieces. Seems that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Like to make money off of, you know, artists. That's correct. Yeah, the one of the labels that Evan and Herb were a part of basically had all these artists, and so he said, 
do Tom Waits music and then we'll release it and whatever. On top of that, he also had to deal with the early years albums, which showcased two albums worth of Tom's early work and demos from his Asylum days, which Herb Cohen owned the rights to. They came out as Early Years Volume 1 and 2 in 1991 and 1993, respectively. And Tom didn't approve, but there wasn't really much he could do. I can't imagine how upsetting that would be because Early Years is filled with demos Mm -hmm. that he did for Herb, like raw ideas that were not meant to be heard by the public. And then uh, uh, Step Right Up, as it was called, uh, in 95 is a tribute album so and there are cool bands on it but having no idea like that this album of other people doing your songs is being made that's mad city yeah man it's a it's nuts but it it really goes to show that like people again he's an artist's artist and people love to do his music and and know that there's money to be made with this stuff because he is so private and he is uh, i mean anything comes out it's like we've got to get our hands on this so i believe in the book and i don't know if this is like verified or not though it said that most of the artists did not know he was against it. Yeah, I believe that there was definitely <laughs> like, some disconnect. No, there was a little, little bit of deception. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Herb Cohen deceiving people. Give me a break. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is so, his son, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. This is his son. So, in 1998, he decided that he wanted to try producing again. So, he offered his services as well as his funds to his friend Chucky Weiss. And they recorded his first full-length album, Extremely Cool, with Tom even playing guitar and then singing background vocals on it. Uh, how cool would you say the album was? Uh, I don't pretty know. Pretty cool. I don't know. I didn't listen to it, so pretty, I can't. Pretty cool. I can't uh, give my... I'm not going to give <laughs> I my... I actually did listen to it. How is it? <laughs> it's okay. All right. Cool. Did you really? <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. it's fine. It's fine. It's whatever. <laughs> it's a late it's 90s okay. album. Uh, so they then helped him and so then Tom and Kathleen then helped to try and shop the album and it found a home on Slow River Records who put it out Chuck said that Tom produced and refined the ideas that he came up with himself and took Mm -hmm. what I'm gonna call bold leap of comparing it to Snoop and Dre yeah wow yep yeah it's a big it's a jump big beat Mm -hmm. bold They but accurate, I guess. Accurate but bold. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so right after <laughs> so after he was done, Tom decided to get back out there and then record his own album, the first official Tom Waits album in over five years. They went to talk to Chris Blackwell, the owner of Island Records, about it, and he was on board. But then shortly after, Chris resigned, and the label was bought up by Universal Music Group. No. putting Tom back in the place he felt he was in at the end of his time at Asylum. So he and Kathleen decided that it would be best to try and find a new home for this album. So they cut ties with Island and then searched for a new home while they got to recording in June 1998, but not before being forced to put out together, but not before being forced to put out 23 songs for the compilation Beautiful Maddie's, which Island was releasing to squeeze a little more money out of Tom before he left. Perfect example of why we are completely independent. Mm-hmm. This is why. No deadlines. Yep. This is the reason. <laughs> this is it. Go to our Patreon, please, and subscribe to ensure we never have a deadline. <laughs> That's thank, why. And thank you for being so patient on this episode <laughs> coming out. And also, yeah, we're, we're, we're beating off p- podcast 
companies yeah. who just want us on there. We're beating them yeah. off mad and furiously. You tell Strictly them. DIY. Oh, tell them no. Till we're in the ground. We're Always all know. DIY. We'll Two letters. Beat anyone off. <laughs> email us. We are Never. on in five. <laughs> oh, okay. <so>, gmail.com. <laughs> so they again went into Prairie Sun Recording Studio and tried out some of their new music, which was decidedly more bluesy in nature than most of his past material, though it still had the Tom Waits flair. They again used the storage room to get this raw sound, which since then has officially been dubbed the Waits Room, or as Jeff Sloan called it, the Waiting Room back in the day. And he's very upset that it didn't stick with the Waiting Room and that it got changed back to the Waits Room or to the Waits Room. Man. Okay, wow. so I, I, I put that seems like a missed opportunity, but now that you say that, that see right. my missed opportunity was that you made it the waiting room. Yeah, I almost wrote in behind your missed opportunity. Should he have called it the waiting room? It wasn't Tom's idea. There it, it is. Jeff wanted it out there as the waiting room, and so if we I feel you, Jeff, if it's written in this outline, I will call we it get the it. waiting room. But we yes, feel you, Jeff. It is. It is on the books. <laughs> titled the the waits room if you go to their website you can find the waits should room should be the waiting room uh and it has since become a very popular yes. space in the studio with a lot of punk bands even going to prairie sun to record in the waiting room because of the sound that it produces and again if you want to learn more about it go listen to the interview that i did with muka and jeff and thank you again for doing that so they Please. pushed themselves if even... you already listened to it then you already know <laughs> that's true yeah because it came <laughs> out to it came out a week ago <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, they pushed themselves even further than they did with Bone Machine by trying to record an even more conventional sp on spaces. Like when they recorded a couple of the album's tracks outside the studio, physically outside with directional mics to try and get some weird windy sounds or whatever with the hope that the extra noises would be picked up. And I mean, it was, he was Tom was all about the lo-fi that he had gotten with Bone Machine and just wanted to capitalize and, and further that i loved his justification for it too his whole he said um if it's right for it then it works mm -hmm. like there does not have to be a formula for recording an album like of completely soundproofed and treated environments because yeah it's going to be polished but is it going to be real probably not yeah man oh he's right i tell you what i would have loved to see tom waits and freaking Mutt Lang doing an album together. That would have been oh. interesting. Oh, Mutt would have freaked. Wow, what would that be like? <laughs> oh. I think Tom wouldn't have liked it. Probably that is, good. I think Tom wouldn't have liked the formula. That's, a, that's the definition of an of a unstoppable bullet being being shot against an unbreakable a, wall. Yeah, unstoppable what? force versus... Yes. <laughs> what yep. would happen? Uh, Ragnarok. We could find out. Both people are still alive. We could make this happen. <laughs> All right, never mind. <laughs> so the musicians were again a spread of past familiars to Tom, who now got to see a new side of him with a family and softer than before. I bet Tom is still like really fun sober. Oh, yeah. He's still got his ideas in there. Mm -hmm. He's figuring He's it out. Got the yeah. wit. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, the most notable addition to the musician lineup for this album was DJ Ill Media who played the turntables on a couple tracks. Tom was getting into hip-hop a little bit thanks to his kids and decided to add that flair in here. And they also pulled some tracks from older records going back as far as Blue Valentine and then updating them for this album. Its subject matter was that of questions and darker thoughts with hints of love and compassion sprinkled in. So it was finished up and then brought Tom... And uh, so it was finished up 
which then brought Tom back to the big screen, where he acted in the film Mystery Men, which Tom said was directed by Kinka Usher, which uh, he said was actually a pseudonym Tim Burton used. Uh, that's what Tom said, but that is just blatantly incorrect. Mm. Kinka Usher is a real person. <laughs> and you got to be pretty annoyed if you're Kinka. Oh, Bur- yeah. Like Burton's getting all the goddamn credit once again. <laughs> Kinka puts his heart and soul into this goddamn flop of a movie and, ta- and Tim, me? Tim Burton just gets the credit somehow. That was my nothing flop. nothing to do with it. <laughs> I, I worked for that flop. <laughs> so this film uh, starred Ben Stiller, William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, Janine Garofalo, uh, ben Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, Ken Mitchell, Jeffrey Rush, and many others. Uh, if you don't recall, if you are born after 1999, it also had the song All Star in it by Smash Mouth. And Smash Mouth's music yeah. video actually incorporated the movie into the video. Oh, now that? I remember the movie from the 90s that had All Star in it. Yes! <laughs> You're <That> familiar, <laughs> yeah. The one movie that had All Star. Yes! I remember. Um, hey, there were a bunch, but this was the one for me. <laughs> you ever seen Rat Race? No, ignore Rat I Race. I love Rat Race. Also, Seth Green. The, the music Seth video, they started, what a, you know, what a good the, one. the singer was trying out to be that, one of the mystery men in the music video. It does sound, yeah, it does sound like the, the All-Star may have been the a song for the movie or in some, in, in any case, was associated with it heavily, more heavily than other movies. Yeah, Rat no, race. I think you're right. All the same. There was just a lot in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot. It was a hit. It was a very popular song. The movie (laughs) Mystery Men came out in August 1999 and bombed at the box office. Uh, But it has since gone on to find a place in cult classic history. Just like the song. I'm on the fence because this is one of those. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. Is is that a cult following? Oh yeah, dude, dude, there was a whole like uh, the the song All Star had a huge resurgence because of memes. Well, I don't know if that's a cult following. Yeah, I mean, it's always been followed very widely. It's always been been very popular. Yeah, somewhat ironically, I would say people like Uh to like to rag on it, but to say that it's gone by the wayside into a cult. No. I, I would say like Clowny Clown Clown by Crispin Glover is a cult classic. <laughs> That's got song. a cult classic to it. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Yeah. That I was would walking be one. on the ground and I didn't make a sound. I turned <laughs> that, around. Wait. That has Saw a, a niche following. This sounds but very all I get like nightmares. But <laughs> why have I heard by that? Smash Mouth, I would not say is a cult. No, it we've showed it to cult. you, and it's a scary. Say, it's a scary song. It to you a couple I say, times. I, I think. very much remember those lyrics. <laughs> yes, got really sick. The music video came great. Oh no. Oh, Never mind. Do, yeah, no, I, keep going. Let's not talk oh, about it's it. Upset. Yeah, no, we got to move on. Let's not talk about this. <laughs> I was just going to say that I watched this a lot as a kid and haven't in a long time because I'm afraid it's going to sol- solidify my suspicions that my sense of humor was shaped by humor that's not funny. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I I've know, I've watched Wild Wild West recently and realized how racist and terrible it was. I get it. Wait, what? I oh, yeah, it. it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> Going back, yeah. It seemed really funny at the time. Living on nostalgia is probably for As the best. Child. Just just yeah. ride the nostalgia train. You got to let it go. <laughs> so by the time the movie came out, Tom was already promoting his new album, Mule Variations, which came out on April 16th, 1999, almost six years after The Black Rider was released. Tom's 13th album, Mule Variations, was released on Anti Records, an offshoot of the popular punk label Epitaph Records. That blew my mind finding that out, that Tom Waits was not only on Epitaph, but like pretty much helped start it. 
Uh, yeah. So Mule Variations was the first album that came out on this new label. And Tom helped Anti as much as they helped him. Basically, he went to Epitaph or Epitaph came to him and said, you know, they're, they're, it was agreed. But then there was this new side label that came out underneath Epitaph, Anti, and and Tom, an already established artist, helped get it started. And I would say that this album was a wonderful one for Anti to put out as their debut album because it was a critical and commercial success, reaching up to number 30 on the charts and selling over a million copies worldwide. And on top of that, Tom got his second Grammy nomination and win for the album. Though, as Austin said, this time it was for Best Contemporary Folk Album. Compared to what? <laughs> Alternative to what? Compared to what? <laughs> he was also nominated for the Best Male Rock Vocal Performance, but he ended up losing that to Lenny Kravitz. That's just a tough break. It's Lenny. I mean, yeah. Oh, the, that one. Do? I don't remember who all it was, but that was a pretty stacked category that year. Uh, what do you do? What are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You guys are really <laughs> sad about this, man. What are you really doing? I mean, Lenny's good. This. I love do? Lenny. Oh, he's very good. Yeah, fucking Lenny. Well, you know, yeah, incredible. <laughs> so, with the album's release came another tour. He felt that he had been away long enough, and he was as ready as he was going to be to get back out there. He began by playing the South by Southwest Festival in Austin, which quickly became the highlight of the event. And then after that, he did an appearance for vh one show Storytellers, where he talked and played some of his songs on the show, which aired in May of 1999. This one's kind of funny because he plays a lot of his, like, quote unquote, hits, like, yeah. uh, um, Hope I Don't Fall in Love with You, Old 55. Yep. So it's kind of giving into the commercial appeal a little bit and then but then he just goes on to say he can't remember what any of them are about and that he'll just come up with something pro hopefully better and he says that old 55 is about one of his friends at the Tropicana asking him for gas money so he could get to Pasadena and drive backwards even though he wrote it before he'd ever gone to the Tropicana so he's just muddy in the fucking waters just make always. it up nothing's just true. always make it up and then it <laughs> And then the music has to live on its own accord because there's no true origin for That's it, right. which makes doing a, a an exhaustive history on the man a, a, just an absolute nightmare. Not, mm -hmm. not good. Mm -hmm. Makes it hard. Art is a lie. Nothing is real. <laughs> Nothing is real. <laughs> so then on June 9th, the Mule Variations tour started in Oakland at the Paramount Theater. It was going to be a four-month tour where he would play 41 shows across North America and Europe. He played a lot of his songs from Mule Variations, but brought back some older ones off the Island Records days and every once in a while grabbing a song or two from the Asylum days. I feel like at this point it'd be extremely difficult to pick a set list to play at shows with such a huge catalog and how diverse they were. I bet that they didn't even sound the same at this point, too, when he played them. Oh, yeah. Well, and yeah, to imagine different. him playing like old 55 after putting yeah. out like mule variations like how do you go back and just do like that like that style you know? yeah yeah <laughs> like how do you do that when like you're also doing like percussive <laughs> like how do you noises, yeah, you're like, like stomping yeah. on a tambourine blowing yeah, on a jug like, and, but yeah. all the hey. same he found a way to do it in some capacity at least and mm -hmm. that's great so yep. 
Tom, the tour wrapped up at the end of October with Tom playing the Bridge School Benefit along names like Green Day, Pearl Jam, Sheryl Crow, The Who, and many others. And then after this, Tom helped others again in 2000, starting with producing for his friend John Hammond Jr., who Tom agreed to let do an entire album of his songs, but in a more jazzy, bluesy fashion. John Hammond Sr. is an extremely monumental name in the world of music production, blues music, and actually oversaw the release of the Mm -hmm. album King of the Delta Blues Singer in 1961, which was a compilation of Robert Johnson's music. There we go. You might recall when we talked about the huge ceremony that he held for Robert without (laughs) knowing he passed away, which made him a huge success just a little Little too too late. late. Barely too late. Just about. Yes. That's John Hammond Sr. Isn't that incredible? Tie in. The webs we weave, am I right? Oh, the webs we weave. (laughs) That's a song. So they worked together on the album Wicked Grin, which came out in 2001 and consisted of 13 tracks of Tom's songs done in John's style. And shortly after the production wrapped for Wicked Grin, Robert Wilson came calling again, this time to do a play based on the 1840 play Wojzek a play about a soldier who allows government experiments to be done on him for money so he can support his wife and child, but ends up killing his lover by accident due to the experiments. Uh, see, Did I, I miss uh, something? Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. All right. Cool. Uh, cool. Little... Escape the fate. Don't worry yeah, about he it. Just <laughs> singing, he uh, just kept singing. He kept doing exactly what I was yeah, doing. Yeah, just killing me. All right. Oh, <laughs> we are coming. God damn it. Uh, God, that album rules so hard. God damn it. All right. So anyway, what uh, the referencing Incredible what Tony album. just said about Wojcik, the, the CIA must have taken some notes from that play because they do that all the time, I'm sure. Uh, well, they probably took most of their notes from trial and error, but maybe. <laughs> Science. But uh, the story is perfect subject matter for Tom because it revolves around this guy who is caught between a rock and a hard place, struggling to get out. And then also... The guy slits his wife's throat, then throws his knife in the lake and has second thoughts about it and goes in after the knife and drowns. So their child has to get raised by the the idiot. And he said, you had me at slit her throat. It's just it's right in the realm of his storytelling. Yeah, it's lovely. Uh, But that's a little bit false because uh, I actually misspoke when I wrote the wrote this part of the script. His wife actually leaves him for another person in the military, and then he gets another lover, and then he slits her throat. Different lady. Well, well. all the same though. All the same. Good. (laughs) So I want to say the broad dies. (laughs) That seems. I don't mean it. I wouldn't say that. Just sounds funny to (laughs) cut it. Cut it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, the broad dies. Right back, you said right it, by back to that humor. <laughs> Googly eyes. <laughs> um, so most of the production for this play was done stateside, and then Tom went over to Europe to finish it up, similar to what he had done with Alice. He hurriedly finished the pieces for the play, and it premiered on November 21st, 2000. Tom was stressed and headed home again to enjoy the holidays and the new year with his family. Tom would pop up into Prairie Sun from time to time to record songs that he had written, but other than that, he just hung out at home. Wojzek appeared to be a big hit, so in late 2001, Tom decided that he was going to give Wojzek and Alice the Black Rider treatment and record them for an official release, though this time, Tom decided that he wanted to release them simultaneously, 
much like what GNR had done with Use Your Illusion. The big distinction here is that this was not a double album. This was two yes. entirely separate albums recorded and released at the same time, which sounds infinitely harder and it is still infinitely better than Use Your Illusion. <laughs> hey, buddy, come on. Use Your Illusion. It's- you trash it on Purple Rain right now? Purple Rain? That's, that's, that's Prince. Prince, buddy. No, I'm not trashing on you that. Are. I'm trashing oh, yeah, November. Sorry, November Rain. Sorry. <laughs> I'll fucking oh, no. end my life if I don't hear that song one more time. Oh, my God. All the way through. Oh, wow. Purple Rain's good, too. <laughs> about that? Are you talking about November Rain? Yeah, I think that, that that's just... Kind of yeah. Cool. Yep. The only song I like on either of those albums is that one I can't remember the title of that was just supposed to be on Appetite for Destruction, so... Perfect. Well, it sounds like it's really resonated in the old cranium of you. So <laughs> sounds good. That's <laughs> <laughs> how we ended episode one. You could should be mine. We are we are referencing episode one more often oh, in this episode than we probably wow. should. That's okay. Yep. <sighs> yes. <that>? Love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that him wanting to do another album and another two at that was because in October two thousand one another compilation of his asylum year stuff came out forcing him to basically have to show the world that he again was not the guy that he was 30 years ago it's called used songs and you can listen to it on spotify but you can also not listen on anything why wow, you could also yeah just not listen to it uh, you could never stop. cue it up <laughs> it's a uh, yeah it's just another <laughs> one of his stuff and it's just it's just the it's it's the world trying to pull him back into the days of diners and 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 boozy mags and the Tropicana and the and the seedy underbelly quote unquote of the world and just not the guy he is anymore. Not where he was. I mean, it's not him. Man, if we were who we were it's thirty years dad. ago, we would be infants. Just something to think about. Mm. We're not writing songs about uh, yeah, being I'd be, I wouldn't even be alive. <laughs> That's true. I'd be a little scum. Good point, buddy. <laughs> just, <laughs> I would be. I'd be cook. I'd be baking. Be, yeah, yeah. You'd be. Yeah. Okay. I'd be cooking. You, yeah, you're uh, you're around. Uh, you're almost around. Yep. I would literally. Yep. I'd be cooking right now. <laughs> so, yeah, he was so angry about all of this coming out that at one point his old producer Bones Howe, who was working on the remastering for this album called him to ask him a question, but Tom refused to directly talk to him. He was not happy about this release. But all that meant that they had twice as much to record and would need to hurry through all of it. On top of that, the two albums had two different styles and feels, again, being from two different plays, so Tom had to work on how to keep them different and how to keep himself in two headspaces simultaneously. Still infinitely better than <laughs> Use Your Illusion. I feel, you know, I still feel like he was more collected than Axl Rose was during this whole thing. So yeah. I guess it's probably not a good comparison, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he brought in his musicians and they all went to In the Pocket Studios in Forestville california another small town of under four thousand people choosing not to go back to prairie sun recording the recording process was similar to every other of tom's albums with emphasis on imperfection and trial and error tom did have his oldest son casey 16 at the time play on the album and he brought in the police drummer Stuart copeland to uh, appear on a track as well. I feel like I've said this before, but Stuart Copeland wrote the soundtrack for Spyro the Dragon. That's fun, buddy. That's just that's Very just fun. Nice. Badass. One of my that's favorite game soundtracks of all time. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that hasn't been said. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know if I've <laughs> to think, it's You're thing just, too like to... <laughs> <laughs> just too damn loud. You're just too damn loud. I don't remember loud. that. <laughs> 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 oh yes uh yeah he also brought in a couple of the diy instruments that he came to love plus 
his very own full-sized, authentic calliope, which he actually found in Iowa. Fun little fact. Wow. That is cool. Yeah. And it uh, gets its own song on one of these albums coming up, and it's pretty scary. Oh, yeah. That, um, that instrument... <laughs> originally meant j- just to to signify that fun was around is is nightmare sounding yep after like, after some time it's like just run it is taken on it's 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 the instrument version of a clown where it's just like it was supposed yeah. to be fun but it is just gone by the wayside and it's only it scary got twisted now. yeah <laughs> it got twisted and it fucking worked i blame it, I blame, blame it. Yep. yep yeah so in yep. the end you're right Tom put out his 14th and 15th albums on May 7th, 2002, with Alice keeping its name and then Wojzek having its name changed to Blood Money, playing off the theme of selling your body for money. The devil knows the Bible like the back of his head. <laughs> I love that's God, this is my favorite Tom. I would never know that Blood Money is a is a soundtrack to a play. That's what's so sweet. about. I think just the fact that there was the name change, it's like, yeah, it's just removes it one step from being a soundtrack to a play. You'd never know. You'd never know. I've listened to this album a lot of times, and I didn't know until I read it. <laughs> All based on a play. Yeah. Wow. How about that? So. Yeah. So they reached up to number 33 and 32 on the charts, respectively, and not certifying anywhere, but in the Netherlands where it hit gold. Tom said the albums were unique enough I blame weed. that they both held their own <laughs> mm-hmm. and that these two releases ended the Robert Wilson trilogy, with the trilogy being The Black Rider, Alice, and now Blood Money. Robert Wilson was the director of all of these. Bingo. Make that tie in there. Yes. Nice. And with the releases came the standard run of having to talk to reporters and the media again, which Tom hated. Again, he loved that he could be private and didn't, have people like running up he hated when people would run up and try to talk to him or get his autograph or anything you know do like the i'm sure you've heard this a thousand times like yep i have don't say what about you're about to say uh but then again on the other side he was like uh also a little bummed when he took his son sullivan's class on a field trip to a guitar factory and no one noticed him or recognized him but then people at the local dump that he went to for another field trip did recognize him he was a little bum that that happened so it was kind of a damned if you do damned if you don't kind of thing yeah he became the chaperone dad and he helped out on field trips and he said yeah he went to a guitar factory and no one said a thing and then a few weeks later they went to the recycling center and like six employees (laughs) surrounded his car right as he pulled out out your demographic (laughs) that is just poetic for for, yeah yeah. (laughs) i can summon him up yeah yeah Tom is living in the world that he had built for himself, and it was showing here. (laughs) Uh, So, Mr. Waits, Mr. Waits, (laughs) Mr. Waits is, I'm sure, what he wanted to be called. (laughs) And so, around this time, he found himself in the middle of a couple more lawsuits. He teamed up with Randy Newman and then Nancy and Ann Wilson of Heart to sue MP3.com for forty million dollars for copyright infringement, basically doing the same thing that Lars Ulrich did to Napster sometimes later. And then in September 2002, he teamed up with Don Henley, Merle Haggard, Tom Petty, Courtney Love, and around 4,000 other musicians to talk about the prejudice practices of the record label industry, mainly the Big Five in 2002, now the Big Three, Three. which they talked to the California Senate Judiciary Committee. As much as he likes to stay in the shadows, he comes out for the right reasons usually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got... Good guy. He's got... 
altruistic intent in all of the things yeah. that he does. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was to push for the regulation of the industry to basically try and stop monopolies from forming so that those monopolies could um, screw over artists even more than they already were with a ton of people saying that there, you know, if there, if there's a monopoly, there is uh, no way that artists are going to have any rights or have any say in anything they do. And clearly over it. it did not work. <laughs> we're not getting into it. <laughs> yeah. But just, just know the top of the industry is fucked beyond repair. Like our entire economy. Oh not yeah. Getting into it. Well, it's kind of nice. The only way that you could fix it is to just destroy the entire thing and rebuild it from the ground up. Isn't yeah, that you, great? Yeah. You just, you need a reset. That's all you need. <laughs> a hard reset. You yep. can't do that unless you own all the chips. Wow. Love it. Love it. (laughs) So, after all that calmed down, he started work on his next album. He also played a show or two over the next year, but for the most part, he was back at home with his family. He also started to think about his next album with the theme being more political than his past albums, more specifically his anger at the Bush administration and the Iraq war. In an interview with Barney Hoskins, who wrote Low Side of the Road, Tom said that he keeps his mouth shut about politics because he doesn't want to put his foot in it. Yep. But at a certain point, saying absolutely nothing is a political statement all in its own. Once again, absolutely poetic. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, isn't there a song that says, like, if you don't take a side, you've taken a side? Something like that. I yeah. I don't know if there Probably. is. Whether goddamn I'm right sure if there is. It's been I'll, said. I'll find it. I'll find it 30 minutes after we're done recording. So, Perfect. <laughs> so and we'll say we'll post it and... We probably won't. And then we'll forget. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Uh, So he started the process by going into his home bathroom and then like grunting and screaming and beatboxing into his own personal recorder. He wanted this album to be the most raw yet. So the recordings he made in his bathroom became the foundation for his album. He also wanted to mess with some more hip hop elements after listening to artists like Missy Elliott and the Wu-Tang Clan and then himself adding bits to mule variations uh they leaned into this raw approach uh, by deciding to record the album not at prairie sun recording studios not at in the pocket studios but rather in a literal abandoned school in lock california a bizarre little town of about 80 people today um with very heavy ties to chinese culture that is such a fun idea like we all we all love an abandoned building. Yeah. Oh yeah. But mm-hmm. in terms of in terms of audio, I would call it grimy, maybe dirty. It's kind of uh sounds like you're listening to it on a really loud setting but with like an inch of earwax in your ear. Wow. So they like cranked it up and then pulled it back. Austin, you've actually done that. <laughs> I've actually done it. You have. I was <laughs> talking that? about recording in an abandoned school. Yeah. What? He did he, you did that Yeah, that, you that recorded in an abandoned school. In an abandoned school. You did that. Yeah, you you recorded oh, in Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. You, you've literally earwax. Yeah, I was like, no, I'm just... glad I missed a story that happened. So, no, yeah, we recorded in abandoned. School. Another another album, yeah. another album that was famously recorded in abandoned school was Slipknot's the sl- subliminal. Uh, volume and that sounds oh, yeah. fine and that's just i'm talking okay. specifically about this yeah this one to it. this one not as polished as that one uh per <laughs> tom's request uh they set up shop in the school and then recorded their 
using many of the old names and new names alike for the session musicians. I don't know what the equipment they used was. I don't know if they had like a big soundboard or if they just went on fort tracks and then mixed it and mastered it later. I don't know. This one is really hard to find a bunch of information on. Um, he did, again, have a turntable on the album, much to the disc like of Kathleen, but it wasn't DJ Ill Media that played the turntable this time. Instead, Casey Waits did the turntable. Wow. It was much like his past recording sessions with the imperfect approach. So it was finished up and mixed, and then on October 3rd, 2004, Real Gone was released. Horse that rag. <laughs> it's very raw, very fun. It was once again rag. met with... <laughs> it's like a tango. <laughs> It was once again met with critical love, reaching up to 28 on the charts and sold better than Alice and Blood Money. But fans felt that it was beginning to feel stagnant for what it was doing. They felt that they had been proven that even though he was pushing the boundaries, he was pushing them too far and trying to be unique for unique sake. Those last two sentences broke my brain for a bit because I spent a while trying to write responses to both parts separately, but they fucking contradict each other. And I was getting literally frustrated, and then I was like, oh, it feels like people are mad at him for not changing his style enough, and then they're mad at him for changing it too much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They're literally saying, you are pushing yourself too far away from your sound for the sake of pushing yourself too far from your sound, and we don't like that you're doing that. We don't like that you're changing your sound, and we also don't like that we can predict that you're going to be changing your sound. You need to do something more unpredictable so that it's unpredictable. That's what they're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Release the same album, copy-paste one time. That'd be fun. (laughs) I love people. Ah, But all the same, when the album came out, he headed back out on the road for his first tour in five years, playing only 13 shows in North America and Europe over the course of just over a month. And the tour was a massive success, as I said, with every show selling out. And he did one single show in London at the uh, Hammerstein Theater, I think is what it's called. And um, there were thir- that's a theater that seats 3,700 people and more than 150 thousand people tried to get tickets to it this man has made him a hot commodity made himself a commodity what a guy Mm. oh yeah Mm. yeah by that math he could have done a show every single night for a month at the theater and had no repeat attendees i'm saying look out garth brooks oh my god but it's perfect i mean could you imagine if tom waits did a did a show for a stadium with like 50,000 people. That's just not a Tom Waits show, you know? No. Yeah. He, it wouldn't be it's the insane. Same. Yeah. I think he would hate it. Yeah. Like, I want to yeah. know there's a good chance I'm not going to get a fucking ticket. Oh, yeah. You'll never. Yeah. <laughs> the chances of you getting a ticket are 0%. I want the fear. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I'm sure all the scalpers and everything. And, well, so his shows were rare enough that people literally pined to see them. I mean, they were so desperate to see him. And he played music from as far back as small change, making sure that there was something for everyone. And just after a month on the road, Tom headed back home. That seemed to be his favorite way to do things. A quick and small tour in smaller venues, less people, just have it fun. Don't be out too long so you don't learn to resent the road. 
And so when he mm. got home, he had another lawsuit to contend with as another company had apparently gotten a Tom Soundalike to do a song for an ad. I think it was a Switzerlish, a Swiss, a Swiss company and um, a Switzerlish company, a Switzerlish company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the mm-hmm. from the beautiful land of Switzerlandish. Um, and so <laughs> it wasn't even a Tom Waits song, but the company eventually uh, settled out of court and then Tom donated the money to charity. I do think it's weird that it wasn't. Right. A, I, I don't know. That's see, that's where I kind of am struggling to understand because Tom Waits voice, while it's distinguishable, it's not trademarked or copywritten. And so yeah, you that like, yeah. I, I don't understand this at all. It's weird, <laughs> but all the same, the company may have just been like, bah, we'll just give him a little bit of money. It's fine. Um, Toss him a bone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and an even more bizarre lawsuit that Tom was having to contend with was when he found himself in a lawsuit against Warner music group, which was led by Herb Cohen, who was on Tom's side, saying that Tom was being shorted on the money from digital downloads. Uh, I think that Herb was probably losing out on a little money as well. And I just got to say, yeah, probably. Isn't it ironic? Yeah, I really do think. <laughs> it's like rain. Uh, <laughs> are you in a little too ironic. So once the dust settled from those lawsuits, everything worked themselves out. Tom decided that he wanted to up the ante on a double release by doing a triple release. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Though this one would not be two albums released simultaneously, but separate. This one would be a single triple set box set um and and again if you listen to our series if you ask me jeff sloan was the one who gave him the idea to do it because jeff sloan was sending him jeff sloan being from prairie sun was sending tom a lot of the old archived music that they had and i think that that's what kind of sparked the or ignited the fire for for tom to do this so Again, I'd not... love to agree with you, but I haven't heard it yet. Wow, isn't that great? <laughs> oh, how unreal is what you're I'm hearing wor- right now? I'm working myself to the listener. bone. <laughs> this is the goddamn <laughs> flack I get for it. <laughs> I'm just saying they're getting it in real time. <sighs> Happy to be here. So he had tons of material that he was sitting on. So he just wanted to dump it all out there, dump it in the best way possible. Um, It was a lot of already recorded material from his past albums, but it got cut dating all the way back to the swordfish trombones era. It would be kind of interesting to see how he stored all his old demos beforehand. Like I'm, I'm assuming that he just had cassettes with demo written on them with like dates on them or like session names on them i don't know that'd be kind of cool to see how he went back and listened yeah well if again uh in the in the interview i did with uh, here we fucking go here we go okay (laughs) i'm so sorry i'm so sorry maybe i should have sent it to you before the episode started Uh, learning Jeff just said that like he literally went into an archive and had to like blow cobwebs off of these two inch record tapes kick them into a cassette and then send them to Tom so he could listen to it. Just straight cassette. It was so fucking... Oh, yeah. All jokes aside, wow. Yeah. Way wow. to go, man. This is fucking all. I can't wait to listen. I, I, I'm actually really yeah, excited so, to listen. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Same. Oh, it's so fun. It's so fun. Um, so on top of the songs that he brought back from the dead, some of which he had to, again, buy back from bootleggers to get the mixes to redo, he recorded 30 new songs. Or at the very least, he... he 
re completely repolish the songs that he already had done. They went mm. back to Prairie Sun to record these songs. And when it was all over, they had 56 songs that they had to figure out how to divide. They didn't want to just like slap them on discs. So they decided that they were going to split them up by genre. So they split them into three categories, brawlers, ballers, and bastards with brawlers being the more rock and blues based songs, ballers being the ballads, and then bastards being the more experimental songs and songs that didn't fit into the other two categories, i.e. the bastards of the collection. Tight. Double what Austin just said. Tight. Tight, tight. Tight, tight. 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 (laughs) So this triple disc collection was released on November 17th, 2006 in Europe, and then four days later in the United States. It was a three CD collection that came in the form of a pocketbook with an almost 100-page booklet that had lyrics and then various photographs of Tom in the studio or with people like Nick Cage, Keith Richards, Fred Gwynn, and many, many others. Actually, I had the whole lineup from Nickelback was there from what I heard through the grapevine. <laughs> Is that right? That was not... Not no, I made that up. Have you ever I'm... heard the song Photograph? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's about. <laughs> it's it's about that book. That's incredible. Yeah, who knew? That's incredible. That photograph. <laughs> What a what a specific thing to write about. <laughs> so, some people said it wouldn't work, but look at them now. <laughs> thank you, them. thank you, Chad. Um, so, <laughs> this this collection was praised by both critics and fans, with it having an exhaustive collection of new Tom music while still keeping his humor and style in it. Uh, the third disc actually had two hidden tracks with Tom doing like a stand up bit for an event in 2005 and then another just being like a spoken word story about a couple of people in a grocery store. The the collection, the box set reached up to number 74 on the charts and then certified gold, which is very impressive for a box collection. And it got a <laughs> nomination for best folk album at the Grammys. Better than alternative like the two before. Oh, yeah. The two before, uh, just one. Before. Only, only yeah. one before. Yeah. So one. Mule variations one was folk. on folk. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. Get folk. And so by the time the album was out, Tom had already started and ended his tour promoting this, playing only ten shows around the United States from August first to August thirteenth, even playing two shows on the same day, two different cities in Ohio. Then Tom went quiet again for a bit, appearing in a few more films and working on what to do next which became a live album that was filmed over the course of the 2008 Glitter and Doom tour that Tom decided to go out on, which was a two-month, 30-date tour around North America and Europe, playing songs from nearly every era of his career, from closing time all the way up to the Orphans collections. That is the way to tour. God, oh, 30 yeah. dates, two months, every other day, pretty much. Yeah, just do it when you want to. Like I said, short and quick. Dirt, quick just quick That's and dirty. Amazing. Get in there, do what you gotta do, get out, take it easy. That's the way to do it. And from that tour, oh, I also want to say the Glitter and Doom promotional photo is the cool, one of the coolest things I've ever seen. I don't, you have to go look it up, but it's like okay. an, an age Tom with a with a bowler cap on, and he's like throwing glitter in his hand, and he just looks very stern. It's an incredible. Oh photo. yeah, he's, yeah, he's doing not, glitter, not making a smile to make, at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Glitter and Doom. Okay, smart guy. Yeah, it's awesome. Yep. It's an awesome yep. photo. Anyway, and so from that came a two-disc live album of the same name, with disc one being 17 tracks from the shows, and then disc two being a uh, monologue-type rambling from a bunch of Tom shows where he just kind of talked about stuff before he would play his songs. After talking about Tom doing stand-up earlier, I think he should do a like a Netflix special 
Like if they could, if he could <laughs> do that, I I think I would sit down and watch that. That sounds like a lot of fun to me. No, no joke. I think that would be incredible. Not yeah, even just a stand up, just to do a, record a live version of one of yeah. his shows and just put it out there. Would be good. Yep. That would be awesome. That would be a great special. Netflix, get on that. And give us some. Do it. Throw us a little something. <laughs> this album uh, also featured Casey Waits on it, but it also featured Sullivan Waits, who played clarinet for the tour. The album came out on November 23rd, 2009, to critical and commercial success, reaching up to number 63 on the charts. Then he hit out once again, before in 2011 deciding to do another album. This time, bringing things back to basics and making an album less gritty than the last couple. He brought in the normal musicians with the addition of bringing back Keith Richards once again, as well as Les Claypool from Primus and even Flea, the bassist of Red <sighs> Chili Peppers, to play on it. It's pretty, like, I mean, Tom isn't s- super popular in the scope of music, and it's insane that he can get these people to just come in and help him with an album. It's pretty convenient assortment of friends to have help make music with and i'm sure really fun oh yeah well i think it's musician man they want to do it yep exactly yeah oh tom (laughs) wants me to be on one of his albums like i'm honored to do it yes you know yes i will (laughs) in a heartbeat and again you don't have to like necessarily come to the studio you can overdub it later and you can what or or at your own studio it's it's easy to do and and yeah again you get to be on a tom waits album like there's there's a claim to that if you remember all the studio musicians who worked on uh like uh Nighthawks at the Diner, that's like all that they talk about forty years later. Like it's it's, it's like a if you're on a Tom Waits now, album, yeah. you are uh-huh. exactly yeah. like you've reached a pinnacle if you get to be on a Tom Waits album. So he worked on it through July twenty eleven, and then Bad as Me came out on October 21st, 2011. It was a massive success, reaching all the way up to number six on the charts, by far the highest he's ever been, Mm -hmm. and again, getting a Grammy nomination. This time, it was in the alternative category. (laughs) He also put out a book of poetry called Seeds on Hard Ground with the goal to raise money for the Redwood Empire Food Bank with all 4,000 copies of the poetry book selling out very quickly and raising $90,000 for them. Uh, This uh, food bank has been serving Sonoma Lake, Mendocino, Humboldt, and Del Norte County since 1987. They just uh, give food to poor people and elderly people. You said it with a a little too much stink in your voice. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Good those, God! Those poor people and elderly people. Sorry, they need uh, to uh, pull uh, themselves up by like bootstraps. Asshole! What do I say? <laughs> Jesus! Well, oh man, those food banks. Oh no, talk- we put you in a corner. You can't talk. Yeah, no, you're screwed. Late. Good it's luck, buddy. Nothing you say will help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those food banks are nothing more than socialist propaganda. <laughs> Helping people. Yeah, whatever. Oh God! Disgusting. Woo! All right. So in 2011, he was also inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And since then, he's toured just a couple more times. And by a couple, I mean, I think it's probably about five dates since 2011. Uh, Literal few. Yeah. He's acted in a few more movies, including another movie with his friend Francis Ford Coppola, as well as movies like The Book of Eli, um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, directed by the Coen brothers, and most recently, 
his announcement that he will narrate the show Ultra City Smiths, which we talked about on a news episode a while ago, which actually, by the time this episode airs, will have premiered on the AMC app on July 22nd. And so, with a career lasting almost 50 years and counting, (laughs) including 17 studio albums, three live albums, appearing in almost 40 movies, and being one of the most influential and bizarre artists for musicians of every genre, that is where we will leave Tom Waits. For now, we will definitely do some more stuff on it. We just, oh, it's yeah. already been four episodes. It's already <laughs> been way more than we ever expected. It, it, was, it was supposed to be two, oh. right? And if he. Gotta say. I love it. We were playing we on two, buddy. Yeah. We'd hoped. We had hoped. <laughs> I think the problem is, is we have legitimately forgotten how to do short episodes. So we'll find it someday. We can't. But th- mm-hmm. this is not that day. <laughs> They're just, are they worth it, though? Are they it worth is. it? Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of work to do them. Uh, one would say, one would say. You know, but... I, I will say this uh, with Bone Machine, Mule Variations, and then Real Gone. That completed the um the apocalypse trilogy with Bad as Me coming out. It's been a decade since it came out, but is he starting a new trilogy? Who the hell knows? We'll have to see. Maybe. God, we could only hope. Oh, he is he's a young seventy, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> yeah. feeling it. Yeah, seventy's the new forty. It could happen, and God, we hope so. God, oh, we and, hope so. Well, yeah. What are you, what's he gonna do? His voice is gonna sound more aged and gravelly. Like, are you what? As Perfect. long as this, as long Perfect. as the old, the old, uh, the old wrinkly brain is up there, he's good to go, buddy. Yep. And on that uh, very sentimental note, we are gonna we're gonna leave you guys. If you <laughs> if you want to find us on social media, you can find us. At, we are on and we're on in five on oh, everything. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's baby. our website, Patreon, iTunes, Twitter, Facebook. Cool. Um, if you want to leave us a, a review on iTunes or give us a couple stars, mm. either one would be awesome. Specifically uh, a couple, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. just two. Two. No or, more than three. Yeah. No, no. Nope. No more than three. Don't. Two, no less than yeah. two. Keep us humble. Whatever. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so do that. <laughs> Send a picture. Ethan will write to you. I will. I think. <sighs> Whatever. Um, who cares? <laughs> Everyone's turned off the episode by this point. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well, I'm I'm, asl- I'm asleep already. As soon as as soon as I'm we wrapped it up, logs. they said, "All right, let's go, let's go listen to something else." <laughs> who but cares? They good God, somehow got here. You're beautiful. <laughs> love you. Yeah, we love you. Be good. Thank you so much. We've got uh, we got a big one oh, coming. Oh, after this, uh, I forgot to say, and this is the perfect thing to say at the very end of the episode again when nobody is listening. Yeah, squeeze we're going to take a little bit of a break before we start our next series because our next series starts our big one. It starts episode 50, and we are starting a uh, big, big series. Um, I don't want to give away any hints, uh, but uh, you'll just have to excuse me while I...